0: Thanks, everyone, for joining us. I'm Mike Green. I'm the CEO of the U.S. Studies Center and professor at the University of Sydney. And I'm um, delighted that we're going to have a dialogue about um, the U.S. Congress and the midterm election that just happened and what that means for American politics, for the alliance, for the presidential uh, big, big uh, race that's coming up in 2024. Um, uh, Before I introduce our speaker, let me do something we don't do in the United States. and should, which is called the Acknowledgement of Country. Um, and I would like to acknowledge uh, the traditional owners of Australia. The University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people, of the Eora nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Um, this is something that is now regularly done here, and it's, um, I, I was, I was um, uh, joining one, uh, actually, I'm seeing an event, uh, and I happen to be in Iowa. So I sort of sp- spoke to the Illini um, and Sioux mm-hmm. uh, uh, First Peoples in the US. Um, and got some emails. People appreciated it. We should be doing this in the U.S. as well. So Louis Lauder is a good friend and a very respected uh, expert on Congress in Washington, D.C. He's now at uh, Beacon Global Strategies, which is a um, highly regarded um, uh, strategic advisory firm focusing mostly on technology, uh, national security, trade. Um, But before joining Beacon, um, Louis was in the Pentagon, where he was the acting assistant secretary in charge of congressional affairs and this is a very very big job in our system as you know because of the division of powers um, uh, the president may have this party in charge in congress that does not mean his party will give him the budget he wants or approve the people he nominates so louis had the job of shepherding uh, the defense budget defense personnel huge decisions with the armed services committees um, he worked before that at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, where I was in charge of all the Asia work. And, and we worked very closely together because, um, as Louis, I think, will tell you, the level of interest in the Indo Pacific um, and the level of, of enthusiasm for the alliance with Australia is off the charts. Uh, it, you, you, I mean, Louis would say we're going to do a breakfast on alliances in Asia and, and sell out crowd from members of Congress and staff. Before CSIS, he was in the, in the Obama administration, um, also in the Pentagon working in Congressional Affairs. And he's a, a veteran staffer from the Hill, worked for Representative Rick Larson of Washington State, um, which is um, a Pacific-facing state with Boeing and Apples and Microsoft and all kinds of economic and agricultural and, of course, University of Washington, all kinds of connections to this region. Rick Larson's a very interesting member of Congress, very thoughtful. He was my neighbor in Bethesda, Maryland. Um, led the China Caucus, um, which you helped, I guess, to form, which was a bipartisan effort to, um, to uh, understand and, and work with China. Um, uh, I understand there's a new China bipartisan China um, Joint Special Committee being formed, which is a little less um, uh, optimistic and <laughs> slightly different focus, but we'll get to China and the Congress in a minute. Uh, so, Louis, welcome. I'm going to sort of have a conversation with Louis. We'll try not to get too Washington Inside the Beltway, uh, if we start saying TLAs, three-letter acronyms, I'll pull us back yep. and explain what they are. Yeah. <laughs> we both work in the Pentagon. I work in the White House. We, 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 yeah. uh, Fire a
1: flare if I, if I use yeah, a, a term you don't understand. Yeah, yeah.
0: It's, uh, yeah, start waving, Mari, if we start using too many acronyms. Um, uh, but, look, this um, election is really important. We did a survey. Many of you may have seen. Uh, Jared uh, Monsheim and Victoria Cooper designed it to um, survey the American, Australian, and, and also Japanese public before the midterms. And um, the, the number of Australians who thought the midterms matter to Australia was well over 50%. Um, you know, if you ask the American public, does Australia's election matter to America? I, you know, I'd be surprised if you got 25%, to be honest, as strong as support is for alliances. Because America is big and complicated and, and and the decisions that are made or not made in Washington are very, very consequential for our friends and allies. Um, Louis has been in um, uh, Sydney and also in Canberra trying to... Um, Talk to members of Parliament and DFAT Defense and others um, to help them think through what this new Congress will look like and how um, it will affect the alliance. So I'm going to go through a couple of things with Louis, who has long been my go-to guy on these kinds of issues and uh, has been following congressional approaches to Asia for a a long time. So, Louis, welcome.
1: Welcome. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: Sorry for the long wind-up. So um, first, just tell us, you know, most people here... um, Probably no, but just tell us, because we also have people who will be watching online, what happened in this midterm election?
1: No, sure, who, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I just, but first, I also want to you know, thank you for, for having me here and, and hosting me uh, here in Australia, my first uh, time in the country. And we miss you in the States, Mike, <laughs> um, but uh, really excited to have you here. It seems like we're in this real hinge moment uh, in, the, in the region. And uh, I think uh, the, the increasing closeness of the us Australia relationship is really reflecting that. And uh, you know, I know there's a lot of work to do, so I really appreciate it. Yeah. So what happened? I, you know, uh, so you know the midterms. Uh, I would say were, were, it was a surprise to both parties how they turned out in the end. Uh, though you know, if you follow American politics during campaign season, it's this, it's it's a constant kind of up and down uh, roller coaster. You know, if you if you talk to Democrats in uh, you know in in the, in the August recess period after you know Joe Biden was able to push through much of his legislative agenda. Donald Trump was in the press over uh, uh, the taking of classified informations. You know, the information, the polling was, w- was shifting. They would have said, you know what, we're gonna win the Senate, and it's probably not gonna win the House, but it's going to be incredibly close. But then you know, that roller coaster sort of moved it moved, moved up and down a little bit more. Uh, and by the time the election came, that narrative had shifted. Republicans were expecting a big wave because of the economic uh, challenges uh, around, around inflation uh, in the country. Uh, and, you know, Democrats were sort of down in the dumps, um, but that's not how it turned out, that, that sort of, the, you know, the, 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 the wave moved up again. And, uh, and, and I, think, I think the reason for that, you know, and where we are, right, we have, you know, a very closely divided House, uh, likely a four-seat majority for House Republicans, uh, which is just minuscule, uh, and either a 50-50 uh, a Senate divide or a 51-49 Senate divide. A tied Senate uh, is a Democratic Senate because the tie-breaking vote uh, is, um, is, is put forward by the Vice President, who is Kamala Harris, is a Democrat. So that, that allows the committees uh, to be led uh, by the Democratic Party. Um, we're going to find out uh, next week on Tuesday what that final uh, outcome in the Senate is going to be because there's a special election, a runoff election in Georgia uh, for, that, for that final Senate seat. So we have a very narrow uh, Democratic majority in the Senate and a very narrow uh, Republican majority in the House. Um, I think the biggest surprise uh, was that um, the, the narrative that President Biden was pushing, that this, are, that there's, this is an important election for democracy, uh, for the rule of law, for uh, the American institutions, um, you know, it was a narrative that had been pushed by Democrats for a while and I think some felt it was stale. Well, it turned out it really mattered. It really mattered in the swing states, in the, in the closely held races. And many of the Republican candidates who were running on sort of the, tr- the Trump-era um, uh, populist uh, message uh, didn't do do well, uh, especially at the state level, but some members of Congress as well, and some incumbents lo- uh, lost. And in some seats where more moderate Republicans were primaried out, the replacement Republican lost as well. And I think that was a surprise to uh, to folks in both parties, and then uh, many of the Democrats who uh, folks thought would would lose their seats uh, because of how close it was in the last election, the fact that historically in midterms the uh, the nonpresidential uh, party uh, does does well, they thought they were going to lose a bunch of those. Many held on. Um, many held on because uh, the um, you know those sort of uh, uh, the, the sort of the concern about democracy and in that insti- the, in the protecting that sort of institution uh, was able to, um, you know, overcome the economic concerns that were in the larger electorate. Uh, so I think we ended up in a place that's not entirely surprising if you look at the whole conversation, but sort of the messages uh, and the and the internal dynamics were a little surprising. And I think it's also that you know you, it, the candidates really mattered as well. If you look at the Senate especially. Uh, you had many inexperienced Republicans that ran for the Senate, uh, and 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 they lost to more experienced Democratic candidates, and in the House as well. You, you saw where um, where members focused on uh, legislative accomplishments, uh, uh, nut and bolt, family issue, uh, 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 you know, uh, district issues. Uh, they did better, uh, and that's Democrats and Republicans. You look at, at the races in New York, where Republicans did better compared to Democrats in other parts of the country. Those candidates were, were more pragmatic and moderate and fo- focused on uh, kitchen table issues. So uh, that's my broad assessment of the campaign yeah. and sort of uh, where, where it went, but of course happy to dig into what that means. But it for is a, relationship. it is
0: a, historically it is an unusual result, right? Because mm. usually in almost every case in over the last 40 years, the, 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 a, new, a new president, doesn't matter, Republican, or Democrat, in their first midterm loses. Because the, vo- the voters, often because they overreach, I think Cl- Clinton overreached, uh, for example, mm-hmm. um, and then they get sort of punished or held back in the midterm votes. So yeah. it's often a, if not a referendum on the sitting president, it's a bit of a pushback. It didn't happen with George Bush in 2002, but that was because of 9-11. There's usually some big, big national security or other thing that creates the exceptions. But this time the exception was kind of the exception. This time was because of the, the quality of the candidates in a lot of races. It sounds like you're saying.
1: I think that, that that's part of it, and the other uh, the other piece is uh, enthusiasm. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think the you know the, the divided nature of the American electorate today uh, has the, um, which is unfortunate, but has the added benefit of increasing enthusiasm of, of, from both sides. It's sort of their, you know, that war warlike dynamic with mm-hmm. the bases uh, has really upped. Um, uh, enthusiasm amongst voters. And actually, I forgot to mention one of the most important, because if we're foreign policy people, sometimes we, we miss the obvious domestic issues. Um, so, uh, you know, the abortion uh, debate in the U.S., um, the, the, the decision by the Supreme Court to roll back um, the uh, uh, the right to have a, a, a choice in having an ab- abortion in the U.S. Uh, really fired up uh, the, uh, the Democratic electorate, many moderates, and many young people as well. So turnout far exceeded the the expectations uh, at the the end. But also, you know, there were signs that that was going to be the case early on. There was a statewide uh, referendum on abortion in Kansas, which is a very red state. Red uh, meaning very Republican. Republican state that, um, against all expectations, uh, 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 passed uh, because of the uh, the strong youth vote mm-hmm. and, and those swing voters, those moderates that, uh, um, that uh, you know, stepped up and that was, that was in that August time yeah. frame so folks sort of felt that that was, sort of had simmered down but it turns out that really sustained through the entire electorate up until the end
0: In some ways the result although it was particular by state you know, it, it depended whether or not the Republican was an extremist uh, like, you know, the guy who's running for governor of Pennsylvania Mastriano, or not and if it was an extremist, then the Democrats' uh, democracy message really worked. And and, and and moderate voters and even moderate Republicans supported the Democratic candidate. In other cases, abortion may have been on the ballot or there may have been a state policy that worried people because of the Supreme Court decision. So it was sort of district by district or state by state. But you could also look at it, couldn't you, and say, if you look at the consistent public opinion polling on abortion, on, on whether or not Donald Trump should run, this result, short of Show landed where the public opinion polls show that America is at a macro level.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, pro-choice, you know, not, um, not enthusiastic. Uh, most polls, 60% say people don't want Donald Trump to run again. So it kind of reflects the local's particular aspects, but also the, the national mood in a way. Do, do, do you think that's right?
1: I do, and I think we saw that in the last election as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I think that the challenge for the Republican Party, and I think what we're going to see in the next two years, is a, really a very... Um, a contentious, uh, I don't want to say civil war might be too strong a word within the Republican Party, but there will be a fight because you have uh, the moderates, the new moderates that have come in in states like New York and the, the ones that were able to survive this last cycle that could point to this election and say, you know, this is the winning strategy, that's the losing strategy. And then you have the, um, the populist, uh, you know, it's not, you can't characterize it fully as the Trump members because it's a little more diverse than that but most aligned with Donald Trump. I'd say, you know, President Trump, one of the best American presidents in history, I may many view that. But the other, I think, more important piece is, look at all the new voters that this movement has brought into the party.
0: Especially in Florida, right? So the bright spot for Republicans is Florida?
1: So it's Florida, but it's also working class voters, which mm-hmm. translates to Florida too, because it includes a, you know, it, 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 they're not gonna get a majority-minority voters, but they're eating into mm those numbers because of that working class populist message. And then in, in, in Hispanic communities, are, there's an anti-socialist message, too, yeah. that's also hitting. So a more, there, there are a couple of reasons for that. But um, but you have a very even though they didn't do well in this election, you have a, a sort of a confident base that is not going away. And the Freedom Caucus and in the, in the House of Representatives, which is sort of this populist aligned group, is, is going to still feel very empowered and the moderates are going to feel empowered and they're going to be and, uh, in, in, you know, with that, that four-seat swing within the, you know, uh, majority, they're going to have to figure out how to work together and then, you know – but they're going to be fighting, you know, quite a bit as well. Um, you know, it's, it's not – I think there are uh, some Republican leaders out there who are saying, you know, Donald Trump lost, we've got to move on, we've got all these other great candidates, you know, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida – just, you know, he did incredibly well. And then the members of Congress who ran in Florida on the Republican side did really well, as they did in New York. Um, sort of pointing to that, uh, but that base is still that base. And I don't think yep. that's going anywhere anytime soon.
0: But you think, I mean, so there is some good news for Republicans because you think Florida, we have upstairs in our office one of the voting booths, the original voting booths from the 2020 Bush versus Gore election. Um, with the famous hanging chads, because as people my recall, first uh,
1: my first job out of college was a Gore campaign. So was I, it? I have strong, yeah, um, my memories. <laughs> and
0: uh, uh, Florida was just, is, is, is a critical swing state every time, but now it's red. Now I think most analysts say it's Republican. Uh, uh, it's now like Ohio, also as a swing state, it's now Republican. So there's some electoral map good news for the Republicans.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, from a and I'm you know. As you know, my approach has, has been consistently bipartisan, which is you know, formed by my CSIS experience, mm-hmm. but also very much my DOD experience. Um, but uh, you know, but I, my background has been working you know for for Democratic yeah. members um, for that context. So just you know for you know for, for full context, um, it's uh, my view is if you're for the Democrats, they should not be giving up on Florida because it's mm-hmm. one of the mo- most diverse states. You've got major urban populations. Uh, and there's this sort of defeatist attitude about f- around Florida, which mm. you know you're just narrowing your 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 field. And my strong view is you know both parties need to be working towards a uh, larger footprint and a larger t- bigger tent. When you have two strong political parties, you can negotiate, you can you know solve problems legislatively. Uh, when there's that infighting, when that pool is shrinking, becomes far more difficult for democracy to work the way it's supposed to work. Um, but I think you know the, the issue uh, with with Ohio, uh, and, um, you know, states Obama won, Florida, Ohio, and Iowa. You know, Ohio and Iowa working class voters. Yeah. You know, Democrats can't give up on working class voters. Yeah. Um, but they feel like they're out of that pool because there's been that significant shift. You know, Democrats made up for it on, in the suburban areas, which is also significant. Uh, in Florida, it's different. It's a different, mi- it's a different mixture. It has to do with, you know, the different constituencies in Florida. And, um, and some of those issues are actually foreign policy related. We're talking, you know, you know, Israel policy, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> policy towards Latin American countries, you know, Cuba, mm-hmm. Venezuela, things like that.
0: While we're sort of thinking about the electoral map and can't help ourselves, can't help myself, jumping ahead <laughs> to 2024, but just looking at the electoral map, what about places like Texas, which were considered red, but were there any signs in Texas that maybe that could be in play, or Georgia, which was considered a swing state? We'll see what happens in the runoff election. But any other any bright spots in the electoral map? Looking at results for Democrats.
1: For Democrats, so Texas is sort of, um, you know, for Democrats, uh, there's an eternal hope there uh, to to get back into power in Texas. And that's driven mostly by demographic changes that are happening. Mm -hmm. Democrats have done better because of those changes. Um, But I think uh, the last couple cycles, one of the lessons is they can't rely as much on demography as they, uh, that's always been kind of the hope. But you're starting to see Republicans eat into some of those demographic margins. So Uh, I think that's a good thing overall for the system to sort of debate on the ideas and the, you know, uh, and and you 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 can't just you can't just be an urban party. You just can't you can't just be a party that, you know, is focused on you know specific groups. You have to have kind of a a cohesive uh, message and set of issues that you're running on. And so I think overall, you know. Hopefully that shifts into a a better, uh, you know, uh, more opportunity in some of those states. So Texas still isn't there. Uh, Beto O'Rourke lost by a ton. The Democrat. The Democrat who ran for governor in Texas. Uh, He ran for Senate against Ted Cruz, who's a senator from Texas, did much better in his race against Ted Cruz uh, than uh, in this race against uh, um, uh, Governor Abbott. Um, And then uh, Georgia is uh, the... They, there's also been a demographic shift in Georgia, but that's been coupled with a far much, much stronger turnout operation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stacey Abrams, who was a gubernatorial candidate who lost uh, for, in her second run for governor, uh, was also the architect of, uh, of a get-out-the-vote uh, system that really brought the black vote uh, more forward in that state and empowered that, that vote. And that, combined with sort of this suburban shift to Democrats, put Georgia in play. Uh, same goes for Arizona. That sort of suburban shift put Arizona in play when that you know, used to be a solid Republican state. So, you know, Ohio, Iowa, Florida are sort of off the table now. You know, I think Democrats, you know, should not be dismissive of that. They've got to find a way to get, uh, you know, strengthen their message with uh, rural voters, but also, you know, working-class voters and, um, and 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 the various communities in Florida. Uh, but they lost those, but they gained, you know, Arizona. They gained... Uh, Georgia, they got stronger in Minnesota. Um, Wisconsin is another state that is yeah. sort of borderline for them right now. Yeah. Michigan, they got strong. They had a great race in Michigan. That is a bright
0: spot for Democrats, and the governor did really, really well, putting yeah. her in contention for bigger things, maybe.
1: Yeah, and that's a working class state, but it's also a state where that sort of, you know, populist, sort of extremist yeah. uh, movement uh, on the Republican side was stronger, and so that the choice was more stark.
0: In Australia, as you know, they have compulsory voting and list. So you, you, you really can't uh, uh, ignore the middle in politics here. But in the yeah. U.S., because it's not compulsory, that's why most of you probably know this, you hear so much discussion about turnout and firing up the base and getting people to go out, um, which tends to pull people more to ex- extreme messages to get their base worked up, which is one of the significant differences between politics in the U.S. and in the Westminster system. Uh, particularly when there's compulsory voting. Let's talk a little bit about now what happens in the Congress. So I, um, thinking about this in terms of the foreign policy implications, uh, have been arguing, but you've corrected me, I've been arguing it's not all bad and may even be good as an outcome because typically when you have um, the Democrats in control of the administration and Republicans control the House, often what happens is um, the Republicans in the House push um, on foreign policy and defense and trade push uh, Democratic administrations to the middle. So they almost always increase defense spending, uh, Republicans when they control the House. Uh, they almost always push for more trade deals. Um, and um, you know, if you look at the Biden administration's Indo-Pacific strategy, which is generally, I think, pretty smart. People within the administration, if they're honest, will say our two greatest weaknesses are defense spending and lack of trade agreements. That tends to be where Republicans come in and, and push them. The chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Mike Rogers, has talked about a trillion-dollar defense budget. Um, and they don't have saw, a As has
1: uh, Roger Wicker, the ranking member of the Senate Armed Services yeah.
0: Committee. Um, so that all seems like <laughs> stuff that people in the administration uh, Kurt Campbell, Dan Crittenbrink, Who are in charge of this region? That sounds like good news in a way. The rest of the White House will hate it because there will be investigations and impeachment possibly. But just in terms of pushing the things the administration needs, might be good. But you said not so fast. The closely divided uh, uh, House, the Republican internal divisions, the that could actually throw a real wrench in the usual model of the advantages of divided government. So maybe you want to
1: yeah, I could further put,
0: discredit me by explaining. No, your- no, I'm <laughs> not, I'm agreeing with you. I'm agreeing with everything you
1: just said. So, uh, um, yeah, no, I think, you know, it goes back to that earlier comment that when you have two strong parties, then then they can push each other and you can find that place for that accommodation. Um, within the Republican party right now, uh, this, this the clash between the populists and the more traditional Republicans, there, there are some ideological issues as well that need to be resolved. One, you mentioned trade. Mm. You know the the the, um, you know, the the traditional chamber of commerce Republican who uh, wants a free trade deal, uh, you know, is against industrial policy, uh, wants you know wants a more liberal uh, you know uh, global trading environment is is a dying breed. Uh, many of those still exist, but they have been uh, they have they they're, they have been silenced by this. You know, politics wins the new influx of voters. Or that those working-class populists who are aligned with Donald Trump and his, uh, his his economic message, and there's bipartisan. That's actually an area where there is alignment and bipartisanship. The sort of the, the, the more "Buy America" uh, centered uh, element. I think you know where there are going to be opportunities. You know, probably are with our closest relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at you look at AUKUS and some of the, the other um, you know bilateral efforts uh, with Australia. Uh, you know, they're, they're, you can find that kind of bipartisan yeah. support, but overall, the kind of the um, the the uh, the Buy America world, the, the industrial policy uh, uh, efforts, which are you know geared towards our challenges in the Indo-Pacific and China, uh, are are getting stronger, uh, and and reflect that's where there's some alignment with that more populist element uh, of the party. But that's you know that's if if there's an opportunity to push forward on policy. You know, the problem with the 118th Congress, you know, we number our Congresses, is, is um, that that tight margin is going to make it so hard to legislate. Um, and, and it's not that the, the difficulty you know, for, you know, possible Speaker McCarthy to put forward a, a, a policy bill that is not a must-pass piece of legislation, uh, he will have to get it through his caucus. There'll have to be some Freedom Caucus alignment. There'll have to be moderate alignment. He'll need Democratic votes for anything he gets mm-hmm. across the floor. He'll have to resolve that with a Democratic-controlled Senate, and he'll have to be signed by Joe Biden. And there might be some areas where he can do that, but it's a tall order, mm-hmm. and you can decide to move down that pathway, or you can decide to pass messaging legislation yeah. that reinforces the campaign messaging uh, for, for the next presidential election. Couldn't
0: you do both? Couldn't he do uh, uh, investigations of Hunter Biden, put you know Marjorie Taylor Greene back in committees, satisfy that wing, yeah. and then on uh, on the uh, defense appropriations, national security um, coalitions, uh, yeah, so uh, which should be easier in the Senate on so some of those he, issues. So he, he
1: won't want to do both. It yeah. will just be it will be difficult. Now, so so the must, must pass legislation is you know it sort of is in the same bucket mm-hmm. that you were just talking about. Uh, the annual appropriations bill, uh, F- looks like we're going to get a FY23 appropriations bill, funding bill for the government. Uh, heard today that there's a top line agreement and in the next two weeks they're going to get that figured out, which is really big because um, the concern was that uh, the, the delay in this legislation would end up falling in McCarthy's lap and he would have to handle uh, passing a budget at the beginning of his new term and if that falls apart you end up with frozen funds. Uh, in the U.S. budget, or a government shutdown. So that's not happening. That's good. And now he has time to develop his uh, his his coalition mm-hmm. and priorities in the budget. Um, so that's going to be must pass pass appropriations. The defense authorization mm-hmm. bill is going to be a must pass bill. Um, the uh, uh, there's going to be a federal aviation administration bill that has to get through. Uh, that will have significant bipartisan mm-hmm. support. So there will be vehicles. Uh, those will be all difficult to get done. it's always more difficult than it seems on the surface even though these things pass every time um, but uh, you know outside of that I think it's going to be really tough. what he will pass are you know he came out with a agenda called commitment with america to, mm-hmm. to America similar to the contract with America for those follow politics in the 1990s. Um you know a range of let uh, it, it's, it's it's there's 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 foreign policy legislation in there there's There's uh, social safety net, crime, border security, all sorts of Republican priorities. He will spend a lot of time passing that legislation. None of that really has a chance. It's all about messaging, you know, for the campaign. So, uh, you know, that's just the easier avenue. So you focus on the must-pass. You 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 do the messaging bills. You know, there might be a few more opportunities. I think it's just going to be tough.
0: So, how certain is it that Kevin McCarthy will be speaker? I mean, he's already got. Five or six Republicans are saying they won't, they won't vote for him. They, they could not vote. They could just abstain, in which case he'd get it. But yeah. um, but, but this is unprecedented also, in a way, really. Or it's been a long time since the Speaker really had to fight after a victory to get the, pers- the prospective Speaker had to fight like this to become Speaker. Yeah. And there are different scenarios you read about. One is the moderate Republicans say, fine, if the crazy wing of the party doesn't want him, we'll work with Democrats. Um, the, the other is, you know, the five or six were saying they'd never s- support him, don't vote. So you can still get the, because it doesn't have to. It's not a. It's not an absolute number. It's a percentage, right? So that's another snow. But what, 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 what's your uh, prediction on? Um, it's like the old news show on uh, predictions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's your prediction on Kevin McCarthy? Right. I guess I
1: can I, I say I don't know, but I can try. <laughs> you know. Um, uh, so January third is is going to be the, the yeah. uh, speaker's election, uh, and I think it will end up being Kevin McCarthy at the end. But I think it's also it could also uh, come at the expense of sort of embarrassing. Multiple vote process where he doesn't get the numbers. Mm. Uh, if, if he if, if he fails on a first vote, uh, and then a, another candidate emerges, uh, that other candidate will also likely fail. And, and then, be-
0: who is that? Steve Kale- Scalise's whip. Uh, yes, yeah, St-
1: Steve Scalise is most likely. The other name that's out there is Elise Stefanik, who is uh, going to oh, be third. Um, but McCarthy has far more solid support than any other candidate mm. out there, and. Uh, they, the the Republican, majority of the Republican rank and file don't want to be held hostage, mm. you know, by a group of, you know, eight, six to eight members, right? So, um, you know, one thing, you kind of mentioned this, uh, you know, a possibility, the moderates can threaten to work with Democrats um, to find a different speaker candidate that Democrats support. It, could, it would be a Republican. Mm. Um, but that is, you know, an alternative pathway they could go down. And I think the threat of that alone forces folks in Has line. Has that happened? It's never happened, but it's a it, civil war. I mean, uh, well, kind of yeah. If, you, if, you're, yeah. Uh, if you're if you're if yeah. a historian here, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but
0: it'd be pretty unusual in American politics to have that. It will. I mean, yeah. it,
1: it, it's rare that um, that we have uh, uh, have had you know, such close yeah. Congresses. Um, so yeah, I think it will be. Uh, I, th- I think it will be Kevin McCarthy. Um, I don't want to mention more. With you, you. Mm. Uh, I think uh, in, their, in your last question, you mentioned investigative investigative environment. It's important to say that that is the area where there will be. Kind of full Republican alignment, yeah. and we can get more into what those different well, investigations are Let's talk about it for a be. minute because it'll be yeah. all over the
0: news um, here. Yeah. Um, uh, the the appetite for American political news here is maybe number one in the world outside of the U.S. and maybe Canada. It's unbelievable. <laughs> there was more coverage, I'm told, of the U.S. presidential election in 2016 than Australia's election okay. that That's year. Or so
1: all my conversations, you know, i you know, I've been. I don't want to say I've been surprised because I, I knew there was a lot of interest, but you know, it, it's the, the depth of, uh, of, of uh, understanding that's been really impressive.
0: And a lot of um, media and political influences both ways. Mm-hmm. You know, John Howard's son worked for George Bush's campaign when I was in the White House, for example. There's a lot of connectivity between ALP and Democrats and Republicans and Liberal, and a lot of we, we influence each other a lot in politics and media. Um, so. Hunter Biden will get investigated, that's for sure. That's easy over the laptop and whether or not he was corrupt and somehow involving his father. Um, but some of it will be, you know, legitimate maybe oversight. Like, yes, yeah, like, like what happened in Afghanistan, yep. which, of course, Democrats didn't want to investigate, or um, oversight of um, Ukrainian arms uh, 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 provision mm-hmm. uh, and things like that, right? So some of it will be theater. All of it will be theater. There will be be
1: an element of theater (laughs) in everything, but yeah. But are
0: there some hearings that actually have real consequences, uh, you think?
1: So uh, the plan as it stands right now under a a McCarthy speakership, Mm -hmm. and they've been very open uh, about the different investigations that they would like to undertake and kind of where those investigations are going to be housed. So uh, you mentioned uh, the most public one is the Hunter Biden laptop issue, which is really about going after the president. I mean, that's, that's very much a politically motivated uh, effort, which traditionally is housed in the House uh, uh, Oversight and Reform Committee. They may change the name. It used to be Hogar, now it's Hork. Hogar rhymes with ogre. Maybe that's why they didn't like it. But um, uh, And so that will be a, a very aggressive committee that goes after those real political issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, Afghanistan, um, there is uh, an outside commission looking at the entire war. Mm-hmm. Republicans want to focus on what happened um, Uh, last summer and and they want uh, uh, They want to focus on the Abbey Gate situation. They want to focused on they want to focus on um, uh, The the decision uh, to withdraw when that happened how it happened and not the entire war Uh, That's gonna be housed in the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, Just really quickly others uh, border security huge issue Mm -hmm. They're gonna go after the Homeland Security Secretary um, Secretary uh, 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 Mayorkas they may try to impeach him which would would take up a lot of bandwidth Um, COVID uh, origins is a big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion issues in the government, in the private sector, they're going to go uh, after those.
0: they saying it's gone too far.
1: It's gone, uh, it, it, right, it's gone it's, too it's far. It's woke, yeah. and uh, yeah. Yeah, a huge campaign issue for the Republicans, and yeah. so multiple hearings across committees on that issue. Um, the one that I think is most interesting for the US-Australia relationship, and I think has the opportunity to be a really productive committee, uh, is a, um, a US-China select committee. The select committees are temporarily te- are temporary committees. Um, that uh, off, uh, off, uh, the standing committees are your your typical permanent your your, your permanent committees. Select committees are, are set up you know, with specific purpose and, and they you know they they can last a long time. The intelligence committee is an example of that, but uh, they can also be temporary um, and they have uh, different sets of rules usually. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this would be a bipartisan committee. That um, wasn't legislative. They're not going to pass laws because that would mean pulling jurisdiction from other members and other committees. Uh, but it would look to pull um, uh, to pull the uh, 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 you know, various committees together to do coordinated oversight uh, on China. Uh, so they're looking at you know, Taiwan policy, and that's probably a more contentious area with the administration. You're looking at. Uh, human rights, you know, Xinjiang uh, and um, and Tibet, uh, economic issues, industrial policy, export controls. Uh, AUKUS is a possibility because with AUKUS, it's it's really a multi-agency uh, challenge in the U.S. Right, you got Department of Defense is sort of in the lead right now, um, but there's a strong State Department role there. Um, there are other agencies as well. Um, there are other members of Congress and other committees who aren't as tied into that issue that they can kind of bring in in that committee and get them more engaged. So if the right members are on that committee, um, the right talent is there, yeah. uh, it, can be really, uh, it can be a really positive thing. But there's, there, there is that risk that it becomes politicized and partisan. So they have, to, they have to find a way to accommodate and work through that. Yeah. And if McCarthy does not become speaker, there's a chance that there's that, still that committee, but it sort of gets structured differently, becomes more there, of a There was an effort to build situation. this committee
0: when you and I were both at CSIS. Yep. We, they came to see, to see us. There was an effort mm-hmm. to build this committee four years ago, was it, something like that?
1: Um, uh, I remember. How, yeah, it, it, it was. It was during the Trump administration. But, they, um, yeah.
0: but the Republicans and Democrats each did their own thing. They couldn't. They couldn't.
1: Uh, well, Democrats didn't do any. Didn't do anything, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, Republicans create a task force driven by leadership, where they try to. You know, they had a reporter to and they try it to coordinate their efforts.
0: This time it's more serious, and do you think it will be a bipartisan uh, a committee? Uh, I, I do. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, if it's a standing committee, oh, sorry, if it's a select committee, it has to be bipartisan. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, they'd have to turn it back into a task force. But you know, McCarthy can set it up. So yeah. uh, you could end up. The worst case, you know, it would be like a January six uh, style committee, where you know maybe you know they they have to you know because they can. They, they, but I don't think that's where it ends up uh, at the end of the day. Uh, one of the big issues uh, initially, my understanding was uh, how how uh, addressing some of the xenophobia in the Asian American yeah. community in the U.S. was going to be addressed. It was a very um, you know, uh, a tough period on that issue no. at that time. And, I, 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 you know, I, I'm not speaking for any, any particular member of Congress, but my understanding was that there was some enthusiasm initially, and then it, that got dialed back because at that time there was definitely that, that the way that conversation would go uh, would be kind of problematic in that area. So that, that's an issue, that, that's an issue that would have to be resolved and, and handled in any select committee. And, you know, Democrats, I think, would have an opportunity to sort of be able to address that more directly, and make sure that that you know um, that the narrative stuck to the stuck to the strategy and these really important issues that have a lot of bipartisan support yeah. and administration support.
0: The, I mean, the reason for that for people who um, who weren't following it is um, uh, with with COVID and the criticism of China in the United States, and in a smaller way in Australia, this happened too. But in the United States, uh, criticism, including from the president and other prominent politicians, of China. Um, Corresponded with, can't say for sure calls, cause, but corresponded with a something like 30, 35 percent increase in hate crimes against Asian-Americans, according to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So there was a real problem. That's what you're yeah. pointing yeah. to. And, and There are a lot of Asian-Americans yeah. on it's both still, sides of the aisle yeah. who work on China. Um, and so that's interesting. So, yeah.
1: And they'll, they'll have to have a voice in that community yeah. for, it to, for it to have so that's, credibility. So
0: that's, that's good, because you could imagine a community like that really going over the top and pushing for, you know, trying to outdo themselves going after China. The, the rumor was that Mike Gallagher, a Republican Georgetown grad, um, uh, where I used to teach, um, from Wisconsin, also chair of the AUKUS Caucus, very <laughs> active on uh, the Alliance with Australia, that he might be the co chair, Republican co chair of this, uh, this select committee. Is well, that-
1: I, I'm sure he's in the running, running yeah. for it. Uh, you know, he's uh, one of the most active members in the region. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he does have strong policy chops. Former Senate Foreign Relations Committee staffer, yeah. for example, he's a Marine, uh, but he has really good relationships across the aisle. So he's one of those members that would be really credible. Yeah. Uh, and I know, you know, the, it's a it's a it's a leadership political decision, sort of who runs those committees, yeah. and will happen after um, McCarthy becomes speaker, and it, which is actually one of the yeah. challenges, right? Because you want to sort of hit the ground running right now to start setting up that infrastructure, uh, but they really can't until until that speaker is mm-hmm. decided, and that steering committee mm-hmm. is able to get, get those, pull those things together. But yeah, I would say he's, uh, you know, he's certainly uh, the name that that, yeah. that, that 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 pops the list. And they're gonna, there's gonna need to be a, a group of strong Republican and Democrat members who are really engaged in the region, mm-hmm. both on the security issues, and also the economic issues uh, on that committee. And uh, there is I think there is a good pool of folks to work yeah. from. Um, but it's not only that they need to be picked; they need to want to be on that committee as yeah. well, and they have to balance their own kind of decisions. So uh, I'm, really, I'm really hopeful, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, you know, I, I'm, a little, good, I'm, I'm a little worried about yeah. how it turns out yeah. in the, the end. Personalities
0: yeah. matter, but uh, the, with the right leadership, some people like Mike Gallagher um, or your old boss, Rick Rogerson, maybe or Andy Kim on the Democratic side. Those are people who will uh, who would co-chair a, a select committee on China, but but not spend the whole time demonizing China, but really. Provide oversight and resources, and push for things like AUKUS and alliance coordination, and and and, and better diplomacy, and and, and and treat it as a serious policy issue. It could, it would be interesting to see. Keep keep stay tuned because the leadership of that committee could really become quite important advocates for the alliance. No, I agree. Uh, or they, or it could be a opportunity for grandstanding. Yeah, and Congress, no, right? Yeah, and there'll
1: always be some of that, right? Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah no. No, absolutely.
0: Um, it is worth pointing out, I think, as, as you and I often discuss when we're in Washington, that in an American. Um, political environment where there's a lot of polarization, a lot of demonizing. Um, the area that has perhaps the greatest bipartisanship and cross aisle coordination and 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 and, um, and consensus is um, the Indo Pacific competition with China and the importance of our alliances. It's it's it's. Yeah, yeah, I've been working in Asia a pretty long time. You've been working in Congress. I'd say it's the broadest it's ever been, actually. It's it's the strongest it's ever been, and it's probably the strongest area of of consensus and bipartisanship in a field of otherwise very contentious, (laughs) divided, especially on domestic and social policy issues. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So watch that space. Let's, before we open it to the rest of the room, um, what does this tell us about 2024? We talked about the electoral map, what about people? What does this do to Donald Trump? What does it do to this result? What does it tell us about Joe Biden? In his standing, you know, should we be watching Ron DeSantis or is it too yeah. soon to say? So, what? How, how do you handicap a little bit the twenty twenty four race based on some of the things we saw in the midterms?
1: No, sure, absolutely. I think on the Democratic side, that's the easiest one. I mean, today if it was today. You know, Joe Biden is running. Um, whether at the end, uh, when the, at the decision time, whether that's still the case, I think you know, there's some you know, obvious factors there with, with uh, that that you know that may may shift things. But uh, you know, he's very healthy for his age and he has consolidated support within the party. You know, I think part of that is uh, his, sort of le- his legislative successes, his ability to keep the progressives mm-hmm. aligned with the moderates. Um, uh, I think also part of it is uh, there's sort of an increased conservatism in a, uh, within the party uh, sort of driven by fear of, kind of, of, of that Trump election. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're, you know, the, the number one concern amongst Democrats is that Trump becomes president again, right? and Biden has a track record, he's beaten him. Biden feels that he's the most capable candidate to beat him. Uh, And a division within the party will weaken the party, will make that more of a likelihood. So, uh, you know, at this point, I mean, you you saw Gavin Newsom, uh, governor from California, uh, come out, uh, you may not have seen, but uh, I was in the news recently, Gavin Newsom, governor of California, who was seen as a possible challenger, come out and say he's fully supporting Joe Biden. I actually don't feel he was really considering a presidential run, he was having fun playing in national politics, um, but, uh, but I think at, at this point you're gonna see more folks come out and just be very stridently supportive of him. So that's you know, the, the picture today. Um, and it, on the Republican side, you, you have, you know, again, you know, this, this is, Donald Trump announced his presidency immediately after the midterm elections. He was you know, advised not to do that because of uh, it was not a you know, positive outcome for him. Uh, you know for for his strain of the party, but as we said earlier that that base of that party is still very confident and strong. Mm-hmm. It might be slightly diminished um, it 's not attractive to moderate republicans um, you know, you've got you 've got the swing voters, the independents not attractive to them and many of the many of the i won 't even say moderate republicans more you know traditional Republicans you know that have sort of dealt with uh, and, and not spoken up during that Trump presidency are now speaking up and they're trying to elevate other candidates yeah. and some Trump administration officials are obviously trying, wanting to run and be that next person um, but they're, they're going to have to reconcile with that core base that looks at Donald Trump as um, the candidate who, can, who will you know, feel personally connected to him yeah. you know, he tells them he can solve all of their problems, he's, he's that classic Kind of uh, uh, you know uh, know, political type of political figure that it's the personality, it's not um, it's not the policy kind of coalition. So uh, that's not going away. And you know, in a primary, he's most likely, I think, uh, to come out on top. Ron DeSantis has proven that he can win in a tough state, that he can grow his base. He's taken some of that populist energy from Donald Trump. Donald Trump has tried to diminish him. He has failed to do that, uh, but. DeSantis hasn't proven that he can win outside of Florida, yeah. and Donald Trump wasn't on the ballot this last election. Yeah. You know, he probably feels he can pull more voters in. He can increase turnout if he's in. So he thinks he can win uh, a general election. Uh, he's come, he came close to the last one, and he won, his, you know, of course, his first race. So, yeah, I'd still put him as the most likely, but you know, I you know, certainly could be wrong. And people uh, and like things former, in two yeah, years. former you know. Speaker
0: Paul Ryan and um, a lot of people who work for Donald Trump, yeah. uh, Bill Barr, the former Attorney General, and a lot of people are, 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 are in the Republican Party, including on the right, are hitting the alarm bell saying, look, the Trump brand lost in 2018 in the midterms and 2020 in the general yeah. election. They just lost well, again. Sixty percent of Americans in most polls say they don't want him to run. Yeah. On the other hand, in a lot of polls, a majority of Americans don't think Joe Biden should run. So... You know, it's 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 a choice uh, between two, and um, uh, it does seem like the, the like like the the a lot of the leadership in the Republican Party is trying to like seize what happened this midterm to try to get anyone but Donald Trump. Yeah, but the numbers don't show that there's anyone. I mean, yet it, it, who it's can do you it. know, in the
1: primary it's about, your, it's about, it's about the base yeah. right and the turnout, and, and that's where the energy has been. So another can, uh, uh, another candidate will have to compete yeah. with that. Uh, and then manage, you know, the full frontal attack, you know, uh, during that process. And then it comes down to not easy.
0: Truth in advertising. I worked for Jeb Bush's campaign. Not good uh, if you're a Marco Rubio or a Jeb Bush and you're on stage with a bunch of people and Donald Trump. So if it's a lot of candidates, yeah. it's going to be easier for well, Donald we,
1: Trump. See, we, yeah, we've seen that story. Yeah. You know, so yeah.
0: Uh, all right. Well, it's not 2024 yet, so we should dial back to the present and. Uh, and open it up if people have comments, questions, observations, if you could briefly introduce yourselves because you're all famous, important Australians, but he
1: doesn't know who you are. Yes. Well, I know Colin, (laughs) Colin. it's good to see you. Uh,
0: Colin Clark, Breaking Defense, (laughs) sorry. Colin Clark, Breaking Defense, I'm based here in Sydney. Um, We have heard enormous talk for the past, what, five years about Australia, the National Industrial Base, and it's clear that if AUKUS is gonna go anywhere, it needs to be made real. And Australia needs to be treated differently than it currently is being treated. Do you think the Republicans are going to be on board with this? I mean, Gallagher, yes. But what about a lot of the others? Are they willing to share the nuclear technology to the knee levels it needs to be? Uh, you know, we could go to queue clearance and everything else. But there are a huge number of issues. And they've only got a few months left to really
2: iron a lot of them out.
1: Yeah. So everything that I've heard is, um, you know, well, the issue with AUKUS, on the you have your core base of support, and it is bipartisan. And it is very strong, um, and I think uh, you know, uh, where there might have been some skepticism initially, what what the Congress is. My, my my understanding is what the Congress has been hearing you know, from the Navy, you know, from the, on the U.S. side, is that you know that confidence has been growing on that in that on that pillar one, uh, in those pillar one discussions. Um, the issue with the larger uh, your you know, Republican caucus. There's a lot of education that still needs to happen on the Hill, and I think the you know the Mike Gallagher's of the world, the Joe Courtney's of the world, that are the AUKUS caucus, will first tell you there's you know other committees that need to be pulled in. You know, on the nuclear side, Energy and Commerce Committee, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know is is, is going to be really important. Of course, House Foreign Affairs on you know, uh, export control conversations. So there's a lot more work that has to be done. So that, that that's not fully answered, but there's general support for AUKUS. There's just not that deeper understanding of what that actually means. How real significant this? How really significant this is? Um, and that's not only going to be an internal to the, uh, Republican Caucus conversation. Also, the executive branch is going to have to engage the Hill on on August. And and that you know it's it's very internal right now. My understanding is that hasn't happened um, in, in a broad way yet.
0: The the there's the legislative path <laughs> to fix all of these obstacles um, uh, my sense is nuclear actually ironically is the easiest because it's a smaller group but it's the larger export control rules ITAR that horrible acronym and uh, you were, you, were, you, were, you were musing earlier that the legislative path may not be the best path in executive order the president has the authority to do what you're asking about but he would need some support from the hill
1: right you right? still even if they' they're, they're not uh, you know export control reform you know, if right. there's sort of a broad legislative fix that could help. Will be incredibly difficult yeah. to do, but you have to have that communication uh, with those oversight committees. Either way, yeah. You know, if there's an executive order, you're still going to their buy in. Buy-in.
0: Good, good question. Uh, others? Yep, up, up, uh, right here. Yep, that's you. Yeah.
2: Oh, do I need the mic? Probably
0: yes. Thanks. <laughs> um, I
2: could have. those it on? Yep. Yeah, you're good. Yeah, cool. Um... Speaker Boehner, Speaker Ryan, struggled to control when they had decent numbers. Recently, analysis by David Smith and Ches Letjadello, for your background, he produces an ABC Planet America program. They do a two-hour podcast, two hours, where they rip the gloves off and get into the nitty-gritty. In part of their analysis recently, about a week ago, they pointed out the Supreme Court didn't rule on three cases where there were narrow Republican victories, and they should have ruled, but they left it standing. You take those three numbers out, and the majority is incredibly slim. If the majority comes down to Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Bobart who won by 500 oh. votes on a recount, not sure it's been declared it yet, way, yeah. plus yeah. a couple of hundred, uh, you know, two or three other members, that Freedom Caucus has been fractious in the part, past historically, looking at our Westminster system, we have a vote for speaker and it's, it's disciplined, it's done and dusted, that's it. Don't rub it in. In the new <laughs> Congress, if we go back to more fractious times, 1800, when they were going hammer and tongs at each other, Adams versus, yeah. thing, you can look at historical examples, do we know what the rule book will be for voting for a speaker? Would it be more like the UK Parliament, for example? Um, One aspect. Second aspect is you've alluded to the voting for appropriations on the more loony side of the Republican Party, uh, GQP, not Michael's memory of 20 years ago, but on the GQP, the kind of statements they've made about supporting the war on Ukraine, voting another $30 billion in appropriations, etc., a lot of people in the NATO alliance are looking and going: Are these people disciplined enough to keep voting for appropriations, sending off weapons the U.S. Army doesn't need and is happy to see used in some other field of operations because it's convenient for them? Um, I want to agree with that, but yeah. no, they're, not, they're not that happy <laughs> they, about they, it. They want <laughs> to. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's a whole string of stocks, things yeah. flowing yeah. out for two years there. So, so, it's I mean, a time I, I, so box. the leadership. So the leadership. So, so, I mean, you um, look what at... What are the scenarios? So let him, look let's, at let pe- him, let's let him, him respond. Me. You look at Pelosi's discipline of keeping the, the other quad, um Amar, OEC, and the other two, she kept them very disciplined, and it was a masterpiece of how to run a speakership. Are we really thinking... And Jane Kustin alluded to this yeah. a few weeks ago. Are we really thinking McCarthy's got the...
0: So that's a, that's a, that's a so I'm going to make sure you can it doesn't lose the question because it's interesting. The first one is it really comes down to the does Kevin McCarthy have the the bolds, Let's put it. I was going to say the juice, but the juice to um, to discipline the party. And then um, what do you make of the 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 wing of the Republican Party 50, was it, or 60 who voted against Ukrainian uh, providing arms to Ukraine. What does that matter uh, mean, mean in the in the new Congress?
1: Yeah, so um I'll start with that question yeah. on, on the Ukraine funding. Uh, so there is significant majority of Republicans support funding for U- Ukraine. There is an element of the party that is that is increasingly opposed. Um, is it? No, they're serious. Um, uh, you know one way McCarthy has said he wants to deal with that is to increase oversight over Ukraine funding, and that's actually an area where there could be bipartisan yeah. support. It's that's not that's not. Um, uh, you know, it's the role of Congress to do that, and so would not be surprised. But there is nervousness about that vote, and so one, one actually positive thing uh, on that front that happened, uh, is happening now, is looks like there's an agreement in this lame duck session with the 117th Congress, this current Congress, to get an omnibus appropriations bill together and attach to that uh, full full year of Ukraine funding. That's, I think it was like thirty eight billion. It's between thirty and forty billion. Apologies, I don't know the exact number. Um, because of that, especially on the Senate side, where there is more complete support for the Ukraine funding, the Senate that, that that has to get taken care of. They don't want to risk um, a volatile House situation, uh, you know, when it comes to Ukraine funding. So um, that doesn't mean it won't still be an issue, um, but the leaders of the National Security Committees in the House of Representatives, Mike Rogers, Armed Services, Mike McCall, House Foreign Affairs, um, you know, S- Speaker McCarthy, they're, they're, they're supportive. The ranking members uh, uh, on, the, on the Senate side, incredibly supportive. Appropriators are supportive. Um, and the, but that's, public,
0: the public is supportive. And the too. public is that's, supportive.
1: Yeah. Uh, and that's going to come with more, more oversight. Uh, and that's going to happen, whether, whether or not there's another big appropriations bill, I know that, you know, in a year from now um, – there's still going to be a significant oversight over the funds that have already been uh, distributed. My my hope is that they find a way to work with Democrats on that and be constructive rather than you know use it as a way to uh, shift a narrative.
0: And and McCarthy himself he's not Nancy Pelosi she's sort of uniquely skilled but
1: they're very different right so McCarthy is uh, I think you know he uh, uh, you know he's he's always trying to sort of pull folks in he's he's a sort of a comment, more of an accommodator Pelosi more kind of. Uh, I would not to say ruled by fear, uh, but that was an element. She's also very strategic. Um, you know, Boehner and, and Ryan, uh, you know, had to deal with that Tea Party caucus, and I think, you know, McCarthy is very aware of that challenge. It's going to be t- more difficult than that situation. But there does have to be a speaker, uh, and, you know, he's going to put himself forward. There's going to be a vote. If he doesn't get it, there's going to be another vote, and then there's going to be another vote. And I think at the end of the day, he becomes speaker. Um, but it will—it will, it will be—you uh, know—it might not be a smooth situation, or maybe he gets it all figured out, and there's one vote. So, it so could go either the way.
2: Uncharted territory in the 20th of January because we haven't seen.
1: January 3rd, yeah. I think uh, I think that's the the vote, the yeah, speaker. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I think it is uncharted territory. I mean, I think you know that that's always part of the discussion. You know. so we need
2: to look at the history books. Yeah. Well, 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 I mean, or, uh, Nancy Pelosi
1: has had—you know—she had to that yeah. the challenges as well, and she found a way to manage that no. and deal with it you know she said she was going to leave and she got some of those frustrated younger members to uh, agree to uh, you know keep her on
0: but it will um, be it, know, it is the, there are
1: things that can be done yeah
0: it, it's like it's very very likely hands off the speaker but the way it happens will be very significant in terms of the trajectory of politics in the congress because if it happens because moderate republicans get democrats to do it or you know what happens to the Five who opposed him, Matt Gates and those guys. I mean, somebody has to lose. (laughs) It's going to tell you a lot uh, about some of the uh, currents within the Republican Party. How this ends, McCarthy could be Speaker with any number of scenarios, but it'll tell you a lot about the power of this of this uh, of this group. That's the minority, but very very vocal. And I
1: I don't want to. I want to also just once again just highlight the fact that it's not just about that Freedom Caucus, more populist group. Mm -hmm. Uh, that is, is absolutely um, going to uh, uh, be, be uh, driving dynamics. It's also the moderates who feel empowered by this midterm election. Right. So they have to figure out how their own dynamic with each other. Um, and uh, another key, the, the Freedom Caucus um, and the Republican Study Committee, which mm-hmm. is a con- traditional conservative caucus uh, that overlaps a bit, um, the, the two areas that they're going to be most focused on uh, I mean, there's so much that we can talk about, obviously, but in terms of issues um, that are going to be priorities, uh, it's going to be the budget and the deficit. Uh, they've got the debt limit uh, vote that is likely uh, going to ha- have to happen in this new Congress. There are discussions about resolving um, uh, a, a, the, uh, the, the debt limit issue uh, in this lame duck. Not likely that will happen. They're going to try. This is a this is a process where. The Congress has to raise the debt ceiling when the the debt reaches a certain level, otherwise risk default for the U.S. government, Mm -hmm. so it's a politically charged situation. Um, They're going to try to use that as a point of leverage uh, on deficit reduction and entitlement reform, um, and then also appropriations. Mm -hmm. So since there's going to be a 23 bill, that's good, but for 24 they're really going to try to use that as a point of leverage. There are areas in there where there can be inter-Republican cooperation and then bipartisan cooperation. I think, on, on spending issues. Uh, you know, Biden did really well in getting huge spending bills mm-hmm. through. I think there's an awareness that you know, with the inflation in, uh, environment, uh, there needs to be uh, more of a, a conservative approach there. Mm-hmm. And a lot, of the, a lot of the more moderate Democrats are going to want that. So there'll be another area where there, where there might be some you know, kind of a wild card issue uh, of, you know, of cooperation.
0: You may be seeing more sort of cross-aisle alignment by moderates than you've seen in a while. That'll be interesting to watch.
1: Yeah, I think it's really possible. Yeah. Whether they can succeed in pushing forward legislation is another issue, but yeah. um, but that would be great for the institution long term if they're able to build stronger yeah. relationships across the aisle. Sarah, did, you your, did you have your hand up? Yes, please.
3: Microphone. Actually, um, I was interested enough to look up the last time there was more than one vote to select sure. a speaker, and it's almost 100 years ago, back in the 1920s. This yeah. has happened. So. Yeah. Not likely to happen again because the way politics has changed. But my question is actually about candidates, and you can certainly describe this the recent election, the midterm election in the US, as a, a vote for moderation. But um, trying to explain someone the other day how in the United States the party doesn't select its candidate. The candidate is selected by voters in a primary, and you know how a primary works in the US system. Um, given that the Republican Party itself did not want Donald Trump as their candidate the first time around. How likely is it that, that the parties, if they're dissatisfied with the people who are running, would actually abandon the primary system? Are they legally, is, what are the, the limitations that would stop them doing that and return it to uh, the party itself selecting who, who their candidates should be?
1: Uh, I, don't, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm not an election law expert. Um, but you know, the, uh, the the two-party system is is enshrined in many of you know the state mm-hmm. election laws. So uh, you know that's that's that. I don't, I don't see that happening. You know at well, at, at I was, any point. I was because but.
3: Because of what happened in Virginia in the governor's race in 2021, mm-hmm. where the was a moderate candidate for the Republicans selected by the party
1: itself. Oh, oh within that, right? So they yeah. so that the process allowed that have to happen.
3: Often the, the radical. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Often, the, the, the most radical Republican candidates are not selected by the party. They're selected in a primary by voters. So um, a way around radical candidates would be to, for the party to take back if, that If you had selection
0: in, in the US primaries, the way selection happens for the Westminster system, okay, um, sorry, if, the if, you had, if you had candidates selected in American presidential politics, um, the way candidates, I think, are selected here or in Canada or in the Westminster system, you probably wouldn't get a, 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 a Donald Trump. No, because well, you can yeah,
1: in, in, in 2016. Um, but, but today, it's, it's different. Many of these state yeah. parties are, are now. Are now um, the, the thing that Donald Trump did, uh, which is, is sort of diminished in the discussion you hear in mm-hmm. Washington today, is he brought a new group of voters into the party. And that's the most powerful thing you can do in American politics. It changes yeah. the playing field. It changes the game. All, every Republican member recognizes that. That's why those that hate Trump have been silent. There's a little window right now where they can be vocal, and you're seeing that. But that fundamental dynamic where you have these new voters in the party um, hasn't gone away. And that's also changed many of these state-level uh, uh, party structures. Uh, you know, and so I think in some states that might be the case, and others mm-hmm. You know, the moderate would have to work around a state party system that is. Uh, so, uh, so you're you know, more, saying that you know, if it was left populist. to the
3: party, you'd get similar candidates as you would it, in the primary.
1: I think it would depend, you know, on yeah. the state. I know it's, it's hard because
3: every state has its own system. Yeah. So, but anyway, I just look at me.
1: That's that's a good uh, good question. Yeah. No, it's an
0: important point that they may not. If if we're really up to them, party leaders might not choose a populist, you know, disruptive candidate. But if that candidate's bringing in a lot of voters, it's very hard for them to to ignore that, which would be true in a lot of the states, not all of them. Uh, Jared? Um, So right now, we're
1: talking about the Republican Party leadership and how that's changing, how McCarthy wants to win it. But we're also in the midst of a pretty sizable change in the Democratic Party leadership, with the uh, average age of Democratic leaders in the House, I think, decreasing by about 30 years, with three, (laughs) three leaders all changing. But there really has not been all that much tumult, right? Like, we all, we've all heard of the uh, Democrats' disarray um, sentiment. It seems like they're really not in disarray at all, man, and they're doing well. What, what do you expect from, do you expect that sort of coalition to continue? Do you expect, you know, now that we don't have, as you said, maybe an iron fist of Nancy Pelosi around, how, how do you see the Democrats going, at least for the next two years, but also beyond that? Yeah, no, I think, and in, if that's a really good question, and I think um, that overall environment, that sort of conservatism, uh, you know, small-c conservatism, uh, uh, element also, you know, you, you, see those leadership election dynamics, it, it, it fits in there. It's just sort of like we, if we're divided, we're, if we're, if we're divided, you know, if you're done, are thinking if we're divided, we might lose. Right. So, um, but a lot of work has gone into getting to where they are right now. Uh, even that Pelosi decision, she wasn't telling people what she was going to do. Um, uh, but, uh, there was an, uh, and so there was a little bit of drama up to that point um, but she also did tell people what she was going to do, you know, a couple of years earlier, right? And the signs were sort of pointing in that direction. Um, you know, the, the relationships between that, that really senior group of leaders, they were not always so smooth. Um, I think there was just a lot of trial and error in that leadership community to sort of figure out how they can all work together. And then there's this younger group that were uh, that are, they're very popular amongst the rank and file that sort of learned from that kind of dynamic know, between Hoyer, you know, and, 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 and Pelosi. So, um, I don't know that fully answers the question. I think it's mostly about you know fear of being of division, and I think you see the progressive uh, caucus, uh, you know, very much making an effort to uh, align itself with the Biden administration, Biden administration priorities, and not be too far outside of leadership. Um, I think that's going to continue uh, as long as. Uh, a, there's this sort of th- concern about democracy and concern about Donald Trump, uh, and B, as they're looking at the other side and they see a far more chaotic environment amongst Republicans that they can, you know, I think that, that helps with unification. And the last thing I'll say is, when you're in the minority, uh, it's it's it, it, it's easier uh, to, to unify. Uh, it's you know, they just were in the majority; they were able to pull it together. Uh, as a as a majority party, which is you know laudable, um, now they're in the minority. It's it's more of a me- you, you just don't have the levers, and so you can focus on the messaging and aligning messaging, and you have less competition over policy. Mm-hmm. Um, you always have competition over credit and attention, but less over uh, less over policy. And I think that also will help with uh, with more cohesiveness within the Democratic Caucus in and the a, House. An example
0: of the of the of the Democrats' discipline and cohesion right now is when the progressive um, caucus members sent a letter to the president pushing for a uh, negotiated escape from uh, Ukraine. It was organized reportedly by the Quincy Institute, um, which is a group funded by both the Koch brothers and George Soros, and, <laughs> and generally trying to push for you know, withdrawal from overseas commitments. And they all disavowed it. They didn't want any daylight with the, with the president uh, on, on that issue, yep. regardless of what they thought. So there seems to be discipline. But, but just and by the real- way,
1: the, the, uh, the uh, chair of the Progressive Caucus uh, yeah. blamed her staff. Well, yeah. Don't ever blame your staff, right? Yeah. That's my, <laughs> that's my strategy that's good. here. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> just kidding, guys. Um, but
0: looking at 2024, you know, the polls show that younger Democrats want someone other than Joe Biden. And the Democrats do have a history of the sort of establishment candidate you know, often getting Hillary Clinton, getting primary by Barack Obama, and whoever seems to be the frontrunner often gets, you know, primary because there's a—Democrats tend to be younger. Um, uh, is that a problem for Joe Biden, do you think, after this result? He, he did well. He's disciplined the party, closely disciplined the party. But there's—you look at the polls, younger younger Democrats want someone younger <laughs> and, and well, generational yeah. change.
1: No, I think yeah, I think there's a—I um, mean, I think it's an issue that is going to be an issue for mm. him. Um and it's an issue within the party you know, I think there are these counter forces uh, and I don't think it's just the young voters I think mm-hmm. it's there's a general sense that you know we have a bench and that bench is getting stronger there are a number of uh, gubernatorial candidates that won uh, Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania Greta mm-hmm. Whitmer won re-election in Michigan Wes Moore in Maryland first mm-hmm. African-American uh, to be governor of the state of Maryland you know a, 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 a veteran uh, and they're really dynamic talented politicians and so there's a lot of enthusiasm right now about that bench so that's going to be a part of the conversation uh, but it's you know it's are they accepting risk I think uh, you know and the younger I think you know younger voters are going to be more accepting of that kind of risk mm-hmm. but the younger voters, while incredibly instrumental in the midterm elections and those numbers are going up uh, and they're becoming more reliable than they have been, uh, that's that's not the group that's going to it's going to be the more traditional base groups, uh, elements of the base that are going to the caucuses, drive the decisions. Yeah. It's and, enough and, enough. and generally pragmatic. It's, it's going to be who, you know, who's the most likely candidate to win, yeah. you know, and beat, beat whatever candidate is coming forward. And so if it's not Donald Trump, that might, might change the mix. Right.
0: Donald Trump disciplines the mind for the Democrats. Right. And yeah. if,
1: so that, that yeah. may change things. Um, but, uh, you yeah. we'll Please. see what happens.
2: Jonathan O'Dowd, New South Wales Parliament. Uh, you mentioned uh, the debt limit, and it's almost gone off the radar, which I just find amazing. When I visited Washington, D.C. earlier yeah. this year, there were a significant group of Democrats who were a bit more financially conservative and, and were really concerned about it. Yeah. The Republicans, naturally, um, should be really concerned about it. It just seems to me as though it's a house of cards which is ready to come down at some stage, but nobody wants to face the reality. You can't keep borrowing money. Well, you don't think it's going to be addressed? Why? Well, no, I think and, it,
1: it will have to be addressed. I don't, think it, I don't think it's going to be addressed in the lame duck, just be clear, in the lame duck session. Mm-hmm. So you know, we've got the next two weeks, maybe three weeks, um, uh, of floor time to, to resolve a series of issues. Uh, and there is a, a significant concern, a uh, you know, public concern. I, was, I, I don't want to speak for members of Congress, but you know, the concern is fairly public on the Democratic side. Uh, on the Republican side, it's, it's more muted because there's a uh, vocal uh, desire to use it as leverage in the next Congress, this debt limit issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're talking about the debt limit uh, vote, or are you talking about just the debt in general, just about to be clear? Us. Both, yeah. So we can sort of separate those two. So uh, on the debt limit vote, uh, rank-and-file Republicans want to use that as leverage in the next Congress to force significant spending cuts, um, you know, certainly discretionary spending, uh, which is sort of the annual budget, but also mandatory spending, which is you know social security, Medicare, which are you know no-go areas for Democrats. Um, that is a huge political fight that is very unpredictable and volatile. and we were there in 2011 under, in, the, in the Obama administration and then in 2013 as well. Uh, it was a really scary time for the US economy. So there's significant public fear, I would say on the Democratic side and then especially on the leadership with the Republican Party, I have to think there's Real concern about having to deal with that um, in the new Congress, but the politics might not allow them to cut a deal here, you know, before we get to the new Congress, and so that will lead to a point probably in the fall of uh, of uh, of next year uh, where that has to be dealt with, and they will deal with it at the last possible moment, right? It's always last minute, you know, when that, you know, when that real fear and, and political threat is there, you know, for the default. Um, in terms of the the deficit overall, you know. I've been around for a little while, you know, it, it becomes an issue and then it gets subsumed. You know, it's with the interest rates, sorry, with inflation so low, you know, paying interest on the debt was less of an issue, more comfortable deficit spending, that is now no longer the case. I think that means you'll have more bipartisan concern and, and, and there'll be some kind of conversation uh, to deal with, uh, with the deficit as a way to you know, manage the inflation discussion and, 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 and you what know, might be a tougher economy. So there's opportunity there. It's one of the areas where there can be some work. It'll have to be I don't think it you you don't end up in a, in a situation where Democrats are going to agree to the you know entitlement cuts. It has to be you know other things. so um, yeah, that's my opinion. Um, so there's space, but it's not what the it's not that sort of you know prize Republicans are looking for, uh, which is. Uh, maybe to get back to that point where they temporarily were in in 2011, where there was a commission to look at entitlement reform, and it didn't go anywhere. We ended up with a law called sequestration, which created hard caps on the budget and was really a disaster um, you know, for the, for the federal government. So um, it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be a, a, tough, uh, a tough environment around that issue.
0: And it's not part of the um, prospective speaker's commitment to America. It's not, he's not telegraphing budget discipline or
1: yeah, he, 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 they, they are talking about deficit reduction. Uh, I don't know if there's a specific ledge proposal mm-hmm. there, um, and it's just grown as, a, as an issue. Um, it's, it's, uh, but you know, the, the exact vehicle and mechanism is still But what unanswered. they mean
0: with, and don't write it as entitlement reform, basically.
1: I mean, so it's, it's, it's a huge priority, of especially the, um, the Freedom Caucus crew, mm-hmm. uh, you know, was the Tea Party crew mm-hmm. in 2010. It's very much a mirrored situation mm-hmm. you know, from that time. Um, so the obvious uh, the you know the two points of leverage one you know on, on the discretionary spending is the annual appropriations bill you know it's like you know you want this mm-hmm. you know uh, you know bound domestic spending or, you know haircuts here and there um, doesn't really get you mm-hmm. there politically maybe um, and then I think they use the debt limit on for 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 the mandatory for the entitlements and, and that that's really no go for for Democrats. So it will lead to it could lead to a crisis. I will add on you know for, in terms of this more uh, you were ta- you you mentioned Mike Rogers and we talked about Roger Wicker mm-hmm. talking about a one trillion dollar defense uh, uh, budget eventually or in the near term. You know they both want that, mm-hmm. uh, but within the Republican Party, you know this sort of the, you know the, the deficit reduction crew. There's a significant growing group that also are interested in putting downward pressure on on the defense budget. Um, That might translate to some of that Ukraine, uh, you know, lack of support. But I think, you know, how that is negotiated within that caucus is going to be really interesting. Um, One of the reasons we ended up with the sequestration bill that we talked about uh, was because there were a significant number of Republicans that were comfortable with flat defense spending, Um, you know, against that, you know, it's sort of counterintuitive to the traditional big defense, lower domestic. Kind of political narrative, which the national security leaders are in that vein, um, but there are a number of rank-and-file Republicans that will be okay with lower defense uh, uh, spending. So we'll, we'll see you know what happens with that internal discussion.
0: There, yeah, Mari, in, in the back as well, if you'd like, but um, you don't have to. We'll go up here to Mari first.
3: Thanks. Um, so I was keen to know. You've talked a bit about um, s- some of the big issues that'll be relevant to Australia with the new Congress. So you talked about defence spending and AUKUS in particular, um, and you also talked about, you know, trade and what might happen on that. Are there other issues um, in terms of things, foreign policy issues that'll be of relevance to Australia that will change now that Republicans have a slim majority in the House? I think of um, Ambassador Kennedy and her strong focus on climate change. Um, and we did polling on that as well, um, and that's becoming an increasingly bipartisan issue in Australia. Um, or if there are things in mm. the tech space or innovation or things like that, are are there other things that will will be impacted for better or for worse um, in some of those foreign policy realms?
1: Yeah, I mean, climate change is an interesting issue because right, Democrats still control the presidency and the Senate, um, the uh, the legislative the climate legislative priority uh, which was the deficit reduction act passed uh, uh, this Congress passed so it's done I don't I don't I'd be surprised if the administration was was looking to you know pursue legislative uh, you know a large legislative agenda this in this next Congress um, on climate uh, with the Republican House uh, there are what's interesting though is there are you know moderate Republicans who you know want to, have a voice on climate issues you know, and are, are they able now that they're um, in the majority uh, to strengthen that voice so that's a question um, but as a whole Republicans are fairly are, 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 are that the, the party is you know certainly skeptical of the democratic narrative on climate um, one issue uh, that where there's sort of bipartisan support we talked about this a little bit earlier uh, is is sort of the industrial policy decoupling with China uh, some of that movement export controls um, but Republicans are are more critical of the administration. There is a uh, push and pull over listing of Chinese companies that um, uh, that uh, were determined to uh, be, be uh, helping the PLA. Um, I think you know that type of oversight is going to be more aggressive. Uh, that you know that dialogue with our allies and partners uh, might be, become more uh, you know more prominent. Um, you know with with uh, more empowered Republicans. Uh, there'll be more pressure on the administration there. Those are two that I kind of think of, off, to, off, the top of my, off the top of my head. Um, but uh, um, but the, again- The Inflation it, Reduction
0: Act handed the Biden administration an enormous toolkit to deal with climate, right? That's already done, you're saying. Yeah,
1: so. right. And then, and then the infrastructure, bipartisan infrastructure bill, um, you know, while it wasn't a climate bill, that was one of the contentious issues with it. It's still, that also, uh, you know, it was seen as a su- success in that space. Um, yeah, I mean his, uh, the president's legislative agenda for the most part got through. Uh, it was augmented. It wasn't what he initially wanted, but he was able to get um, Joe Manchin, who was the swing vote in the Senate, uh, on board with uh, the key elements of his agenda. And I think, uh, you know, I, uh, I would think there's a recognition now uh, in this new Congress that it is, uh, you know, it's just going to be really hard to get anything legislative through. And we'll probably see more executive orders, uh, more administration-driven policy changes for that reason.
0: There's, an, there's, a, hold on, there's, sorry. there's another on. There's another historical precedent here you're kind of pointing at, which is 1994, Republicans take the House. You know, often when presidents lose one or the other chambers, it's harder to get things done, especially mm-hmm. on domestic and social uh, uh, policy issues. So it tends to, in terms of presidential legacy, push people towards foreign policy. So Clinton did a lot after he lost in 94 in defense and trade. Um, and that's happened before. Um, do you think that's, you think that President Biden is going to look at this, see, see some of the limits he faces and think his legacy, other than stopping Donald Trump, is going to be about competition with China, restoring America's position in the world? How do you think, how do you think people in the White House who are talking to him about his, his historical legacy are going to think, I, I, interpret what this means for him?
1: I think that's always something Joe Biden wants to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, as, <laughs> as some of you may know, he was chair of the Senate Foreign Relations yep. Committee. And, and uh, you know, he uh, – um, that is his uh, – you know, the, the, that's a space where he's most comfortable, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he has to—he has to run. He, he, at this point, he's running for re-election, right? Yeah. So uh, he, that he has to find a way uh, to also make the argument. You know, he's not going to be able to have legislative accomplishments, mm-hmm. um, but he can argue that he's pr- protected his legislative accomplishments mm-hmm. from his first two years. Um, that the implementation is going strongly. That the economy is getting better. You know, the, you know even the, the foreign policy narrative in this administration—it's about connecting it to the domestic economy, the domestic issues. So the Buy the buy America uh, kind of uh, you know, economic shift, you know, Biden is very much part of that. He's always been that way. Um, you know, and so uh, as, as, as well. So I think it's, you know, uh, second term, I think you mm-hmm. get a lot of that. Uh, but that first term he still mm-hmm. you know, needs to you know get in you know make that argument to the American people that he's pulling you know the economy in the right direction. Yeah. And, you know, we have the inflation challenge still. We have our supply chain issues still from COVID, um, which are creating or exacerbating inflation. Uh, And uh, and, and there's a a, a worry that, you know, we may end up in a recession, you know, in the near term as well. And that's a strong possibility. So I think that will still be the most prominent set of issues he has to deal with.
0: So last question, I'm I'm going to... preface it with a bit of an international relations theory point, which some scholars have made, which is one reason that American primacy, uh, which is a theoretical term, uh, has lasted so long. You know, the, the U.S. had 50 percent of global economic output in the 1950s. By the Vietnam War, it was 25 percent, and it's a little bit below that now. One reason the U.S. has maintained leadership is because of allies, and one reason it's maintained strong allies, scholars like Charlie Kupchen and others argue— is because allies can shape the American system. You know, it's not like Imperial Rome or even Britain. You know, the allies actually can. It's an open, contested process. If you understand it, you mm-hmm. can shape outcomes. It's really hard to understand it. But um, looking at the midterms for allies—Australia, Britain, Japan—what's what, what's your advice? How do how should they think about? I mean, Arthur Cena Dunis in the embassy in Washington is excellent. But what would your advice be? You know, how do you uh, how do you as an ally, as a U.S. ally or friend? look at the midterm and position yourself with a new congress with a more you know with a divided government
1: yeah no I think um, I think where there's where there's strong alignment uh, right now is uh, you know on, on, on the you know it, it on the and the security strategy side you look at our national defense strategy uh, it's very much about further tying uh, you know recognizing that we have kind of Common concerns in terms of where, you know, where, in which direction the world is moving, um, you know, vis-a-vis China, uh, vis-a-vis Russia, um, you know, and how do we become more, become more interoperable, work more closely together. And so, you know, really, you know, work to understand where sort of our, 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 our security establishment is going mm-hmm. and, and looking to deepen those ties because there's a lot of bipartisan political support for that. Uh, and, you know, AUKUS is an element of that. Um, I think trade is difficult right now because of um, that uh, because of those, some of those domestic mm-hmm. um, dynamics uh, unless there can be a maybe a national security argument you know connected mm-hmm. to that trade um, you know and I also think you know there you know, there's that concern about the rise of authoritarianism around the world and um, you know uh, the need to strengthen our mutual democracies uh that's that that you know in the American system, uh, you know, uh, there's there a real concern that that was eroding and this midterm election showed that, you know, it's a resilient, America has a resilient democracy. Um, and that is bipartisan. I think, you know, there's there's a problematic group in one of the parties that, you know, on, on that front, in my view, but um, uh, but there are others in the, it, you know, there, but there are members in both parties who very much, you know, recognize those challenges. They might not be as vocal, mm. um, but they, you know, an easy way for them to engage on those issues is to, you know, continue in the great tradition of, you know, having our, our mutual democracy support each other and, and strengthen democracy around the world. So, you know, I think there's, there's more space, uh, you know, and, and opportunity in that area, um, you know, where, uh, in, especially in an environment where, you know, at the political level, will be really a more domestic yeah. partisan conversation. It will be about the economy. It will be about inflation. It will be about the deficit. You know, the foreign policy arena, um, there's always more opportunity for bipartisanship. I don't think that's going to change. Uh, even some of the most, you know, uh, aggressive partisan members on both sides, they find a relationship on the other side where they can work on one thing or two things. Mm-hmm. Often that's a foreign policy issue, it's a caucus, it's, mm-hmm. a, um, it's a committee, uh, an effort to collaborate on a committee. That's still going to happen. So look for those relationships and uh, you know, look for opportunities. Mm.
0: The, the polling we did showed 70% of Americans, I think, Jared, and 50% of Australians were worried about American democracy. But um, you make an important point just now. Um, uh, this election proved dire predictions largely wrong. You still have holdouts in Arizona, but the electoral process and the elections and voting and the people's voice carried the day It yeah. worked.
1: You know? Every secretary, of state candidate in a swing state that was an election denier lost. Um, and that, that was a significant <laughs> significant sign. Thank
2: God for that. So,
0: yeah. yeah. so it's got to end with a Churchill quote. I don't know which one. The, the, it's the worst form of government yes. except all the other ones. or you can always count on the Americans to do all the wrong things before they eventually do the right thing, but uh, we're getting there. Thank you uh, all for joining us. Thank you, Louis yes, for sir. having you. <laughs>